Welcome to Season 7 of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season 7 of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Douglas Kearney during his tenure as a Bagley Wright lecturer. Douglas Kearney's lectures plumb the boundless curiosity, rigorous investigation, and linguistic chops that have come to be associated with the singular voice of their author. Across four talks, Douglas Kearney focuses his lens upon performance and its tensions, conflations of violence and entertainment, lineage and visibility, reading versus looking, and the shadowy gloaming in which both werewolves and prepositions dwell. Today, we'll hear Kearney's talk, Hashtag Werewolf Goals. This talk was originally given October 8, 2020, at Washington University in St. Louis via Zoom. Please enjoy. Hashtag Werewolf Goals. For Marsha Kearney, Nicole McJamerson, and Justin Philip Reed. One note before beginning in earnest. I have capitulated to an etymological inequity. Werewolf is a gendered term. The old English were means man and wolf, wolf. Lycanthrope is drawn from Lycon, an Arcadian cannibal king who tried tricking Zeus into eating people. Angered, Zeus turned Lycon into a wolf. Lycos, wolf, lycanthrope. Lycos and anthros, anthros, man. Though any person, it seems, can become a werewolf, most examples I've read about or seen depicted are men. I will use person and wolf later. This may mark a failure of language. Lycanthropy is a disorder in which someone believes they are a werewolf. When I use the term lycanthropy and its variations, I do so as many others have, to denote the actual state of being a werewolf. We must begin with an understanding. This lecture is about writing and werewolf practice. In writing, writing and werewolf practice, I do not speak in figures. No like or as haunts invisibly the phrase grinning. Writing's no proxy here for werewolf practice. Neither do I aspire to write my way towards something werewolf-like. So while I will talk about writing, mostly I will discuss years of desire to be a werewolf. It's best I set down that before poetry, I was committed to a werewolf metier. I've tried to recollect my introduction to the subject. This has proven fruitless, and I resist the urge to speculate for fear that I'd invent something too apt for this lecture. Better I say I can't recall not knowing about werewolves and simultaneously being drawn to them. In werewolves, I do not see kin. I know I am not one. I see a goal of sorts. To this end, before I turned 10, I worked out a regimen of exercises from cinematic werewolf metamorphosis scenes. The idea was to condition my body for it to prepare and, if I'm honest, activate my own transformation. Stretches to accommodate a wolf person anatomy, meditative sensory reallocation to facilitate my new perceptual enhancements, Vigorous trials of focus. It remains true that I hope flexing my hand until the palm is convex while curling my fingers into a hooked right angles will produce claws. It's more than a tensorial curve, but a pushing you must picture. Conjure a knuckle there you've forgotten. 
when I dream, sometimes I've dreamt myself a werewolf or some other shapeshifter. Only that's not why I'm talking about my dreams right now. In some dreams, I am capable of something not quite flight. But if I jump, then rotate my arms just so, against gravity's pull, I suppose, I can forestall alighting, extending the leap's distance, remaining aloft in hung time. I've done this again and again, such that I know how to manage it in different dreams. What's more, walking around, awake, or here, typing as I am, and seated, I remember the feeling in my muscles, can remember it as sharply as I recall doing the shoot, strapping tight Velcro shoes, tearing open funding with my teeth. The memory, the sensation of it, seems tied to place and context. I cannot do a backflip except underwater, but I know the sensation and how to achieve it even when I haven't been submerged for more than a year. Even here in this flimsy air, my body remembers pieces together when it's done. While stretching my hands into claws, I hunt my memory. Have I ever felt talons grow from my fingertips? Do I know the twinge of lupine hair breaking my burning, blossoming skin? How does the paradigm of meaning-making shift when I find I can smell more keenly than I can see? In all these years, have I come closer to knowing? You might suggest I use writing to account for these questions, documenting my thoughts about them in a field journal. May 26, I think I smelled a pig at one mile today. Nope, I have no werewolf archive. There are a few poems, sure, yet they skin the lycanthrope to cover and do some other thing. Those poems, they are not telling you what I am telling you, that I have meant to be a werewolf, and that this has been, I'm afraid, a quiet, lifelong ambition a discipline I've maintained longer and to less purpose, it would seem, than nearly all else. Still, less purpose does not mean no purpose at all. Writing this lecture dogged me to ponder the why of it. Many familiar with my poems could observe that popular associations between werewolves and violence has uh, made fine chime with my work's steady study of brutality. As is true for many people, Violence has been my grim companion, systemic and personal. With me as subject and object, the werewolf's ability to savage often comes bound to an act of violence visited upon them, an animal attack, a curse, a punishment. Most of my life, I've found violence inextricable from control. You've a temper you couldn't manage. You force someone to do something they don't want to do. You lost in one place and will damn sure win in another. Control absent and present, knotted with violence. People use the werewolf. My wife, a lifelong horror fiction enthusiast and writer, reminds me to narrativize about control and the social toll of losing it. It should not surprise anyone familiar with my work that control, formal, rhetorical, prosodic, compositional, thematic, performative, and social are central, control, central, central concerns. But is this relationship to control why I have wanted to become a werewolf? In Shapeshifters, A History, author John B. Kashuba writes, the werewolf is probably the most well-known shapeshifter and is the quintessential example of what can go wrong 
when that animal nature takes control. Its popularity and attraction may say something about our own latent desires to be free of the shackles of morality and run naked through the nighttime woods howling at the moon. Stephen King, in his unofficial dissertation on horror, Dance Macabre, has it, what we're talking about here at its most basic levels is the old conflict between id and superego, the free will to do evil or to deny it, or in Stevenson's own terms, the conflict between mortification and gratification. This old struggle is the cornerstone of Christianity. The Stevenson he's speaking on is Robert Lewis, author of what King considers the foundational werewolf text of popular imagination, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What I find interesting about both Kashuba and King's assessments of werewolfery is the suggestion that by turning into a wolf or wolf-like creature, one escapes societal controls. This seems mighty something or other. Consider Gévaudan, a now-gone southern region of France, which from 1764 to 1767 was beset by a beast many cried was werewolf, slaughtered about 100 locals several savagely decapitated, as opposed to, I guess, well, kindly decapitated. In answer, King Louis XV sent his royal gun bearer, who, with his nephew, slew a 130-pound wolf who fit a fuzzy description. A couple of months later, the killings continued. Whoops. Karl Hans Tack, who wrote the Gewaldan tragedy, The Disastrous Campaign of a Deported Beast, notes that from 1764 to 1767, more than a hundred wolves were killed in Gibraltar. Half a dozen of those wolves were thought to be the beast. What I mean to mean with this is that if one were to become a wolf, free themselves of some shackles and do evil, there would soon come mobs killing anything what might remotely match a lupine profile. This isn't impunity around my woods, nephew. One must imagine themselves perceived innocent when in human skin to think so. White was the word, mighty white. Even potential anonymity is contingent. In most of the folklore I read, a trope that sticks is injuries a werewolf sustains in either form carries over to the other. Lose a hand, you become a wolf, sans pa. Sustain a slash across your muzzle, you wake to a gouged nose in the bathroom mirror. No. The werewolf as beast or fictional half person, half beast was not free of any control I didn't ultimately feel subject to. An alibi means nothing if no one de-escalates before firing that silver bullet. What the werewolf has that I wanted is a transformed relationship between body and place. This by way of their keener senses. They would know things about themselves in their surroundings I never could. I stand sometimes in a stiff wind, sniffing, listening. I peer in the darkness, trying to understand what shapes light doesn't see. I think, too, of werewolves' powerful musculature. I imagine it coupled with my new senses, enhancing my proprioception, perception or awareness of the position and movement of the body, allowing me to take joy in motion through space instead of fear. Is that freedom from morality? Whose? And is its fleetingness freedom at all? Contingent upon the pale moon come to shine its face on? This would be a time to know better the briar's signal and noise. 
that this knowing could become part of my body's memory, not as a dream, but as a passage of conscious time astonishes me. Monstrous strength to fight those who harm me, sure. But when I dream of revenge, I'm not proud to say I don't care for ambiguity about my identity. Later, for a mask of fur and fangs. On writing and spatial memory. I sit at my desk, my fingers hunt and peck over keys. I never mastered typing by touch. I stare down almost at the letters. They stare back. It's fine. It goes on like this until it doesn't. I'm not certain when it happens, the shift when I stop seeing the keys. Then there I go, not by touch, but by a flickering spatial memory. My fingers, I guess, still pouncing, not sliding. And for a pass, I'm somewhere else, there in the hippocampus, a part of the brain that shares a name with a half horse, half fish I learned about as a child studying mythical creatures. Hippocampus a seahorse-shaped curve of the brain where there be episodic memory. When I'm in the hippocampus, is it the letters, is it that the letters on the butterfly keyboard are no longer those designed by Apple, but are my L, my E, my T, R, and S, somehow both shapeless and contoured there along the limbic's dark cliff? Both in the semantic sequence, what spells letters, and the Q-W-E-R-T-Y thicket undoing it, my fingers stalk quickly. Next, what happens? I catch myself thinking, did I stroke the T without looking? Whatever swifter animal my index had become downshifts human, as if its sense of smell dims. I tap the T, maybe, but perhaps this the Y, close, I assess. You almost know, I go. Almost. I wonder in the moments that follow about the relationship between spatial memory and what many name muscle memory. In suggesting muscle's ability to remember, I didn't know to distinguish the growth of myonuclei, the cells and muscles fiber, and the neurons in the motor cortex. Memory in the fiber makes it easier for muscles to return, even after atrophy from lack of use. The motor cortex, with its network of connections, accounts for the series of movements that become reflexive after practice. Flexing my hands again into their blunt series of angles, I stare at them. Nothing in the place where claws should be. What is it I'm teaching them to remember, to know? Public education in Pasadena, California being what it was, I had no choice in lycanthropy but self-education. Lugaruji Kachagalia. Means for locating accredited training or even after-school programs were scant and unhelpful. The yellow pages skipped werewolf altogether. Further, unlike most of my interests, including poetry, puppetry, and drawing, lycanthropy remained an unknown passion to my parents. My brother had me when I was nine and he 13, I told him I learned a spell meant to shift my shape. Found it in a library book called Black Magic, White Magic. I remember it even now. I will go into a cat with sorrow, a sigh, and a black shot. And I will go in the devil's name. I, while I come home again. Immediately, my brother laid out the theological problem of the Lutheran doing anything in the devil's name. There were other hitches, 
In addition to the spell's verbal component, an unidentified ointment or salve was required. And what was set down in black and white was hermeneutic trouble. The final line's euphemistic home in proximity to the devil is dangerously ambiguous. I hadn't a clue what a black shot was. With sorrow, a sigh, profess a bleakness, the propulsive meter belies. And then, of course, I would be going into a cat. Reckon I objected to species? Match, cats aren't wolves. Even so, I respected progression. I was in fourth grade. I had been in third grade briefly, a Cub Scout. Wolf badge followed Bobcat. I'd work my way up. Was it aesthetic? The spell's prosody of tight, often internal slant rhyme, cat, shot, will, while, name, come, home, assonance, cat black, I, sigh, I, while, I, and stress to unstress rhyme, go, sorrow, and will, devil, still goes into my poetics. No. In truth, my issue with the spell was grammatic. Prepositions wrong. Lycanthropy and prepositions. What I've come to understand is that the demonstrative nature of werewolves, which is to say their externalized transformation from person to not only person is articulated most simply in prepositions. Should we take person and wolf as potential syntactic subjects, we have the start of our werewolf logistic. It's best we remember that a werewolf isn't a werewolf when they are hairy and clawed. They are a werewolf because they must turn hairy and clawed. The metamorphosis then is not becoming a werewolf. It is a demonstration of their lycanthropic nature, often commanded without any agency on the werewolf's part. Now, these constraints are specific and not intended as metaphor. While becoming a werewolf may involve agency via a spell, consensual exposure, or years and years and years and years and years of devoted practice. Until one is no longer a werewolf, the compulsory shape-shifting the werewolf undergoes is not an apparatus of state law, cultural convention, or cooperation even under duress. Next, I wish to offer that the end of the transformation indicates an optical demonstration of the werewolf logistics. It is not a culmination of lycanthropy itself, but a demonstration of its presence. So when I use the terms demonstration or optical demonstration, I only mean to mean that an event of external metamorphosis is complete. Finally, I'll capitulate to a presumptive topological aspect of most Western lycanthropic relationships, that lycanthropy happens to people. I apologize for this limit to my knowledge. After all, lupine communication is an established fact. Should wolves share a cultural understanding of werewolves, perhaps their lore has it as a thing people visit upon their past. At any rate, after initial contact in the case of biological lycanthropic spread, the relationship between wolf and person, the tension of which structures the modes of metamorphosis under analysis here, thus the insertion of a preposition between person and wolf proprioceptively establishes their relationship. Person into wolf. The person moves to occupy the body of the wolf. Such an arrangement may require 
the presence of an actual wolf that becomes a vehicle for some aspect component of the person. This is the cat spell. I didn't want to go into a cat or wolf for that matter. The werewolf was no sinewy, shaggy suit to wear. Such an arrangement described a separation between me and the wolf. I wanted to be one thing. It's such, it's possible to imagine into as the person's body producing a wolf body in its place. Into here takes on the sense of composition, not placement, but the ambiguity is too slippery. Here's an exercise for into. Focus on the idea of a suppository, a narrow tapering shape that dissolves, the same color you imagine yourself to be. Or using muscles only, compress your body into a suppository shape. Dissolution will come. Wolf inside person, the beast within arrangement. The person is an ambulatory kennel or pregnant with a more or less mature wolf. The wolf shelters, gestates there, waiting to emerge. Inside exercise, fix in your mind an idea of a small thing getting bigger. It could be an object or sound, an odor or a memory. It can grow as large as you imagine yourself as a place to be. Then it must grow somewhat larger with you still there to imagine. Or open wide your mouth and tense your esophageal tract in an expulsive attitude. If possible, run your fingers down your sternum, feeling for the latch. Wolf with person or person with wolf. A conjunction and could be better, but with more, but with more expressively suggests collaboration and amplification. Prepositions also seem to me to imply activity in spatial context, necessary in the case of metamorphosis into optical demonstration. The relation, ray, person, wolf, seems one of physical separateness, but bound through some other intimacy, or perhaps one serving as an appendage to the other. With exercise, go low to the ground and move in a circle, inhaling deeply for to smell your own motion. You may do this all with any form of assistance or via visualization. Person by wolf or wolf by person. Where with presents an intangible connection regardless of proximity. By denotes an adjacent nearness, though there stands also a connotation of support. The one by the one, their separateness seems foregrounded. Relational language of with intimates a movement toward union, distinct from standing by someone. By may also indicate authorship, that the respective person or wolf has composed the respective wolf or person. This makes by compelling. By exercise. Think on falling, but in this thought be caught by what you call wolf, but you catch too as it catches you. Maws, arms, paws, palms, a lap, a back. Or on a moonlit night, lean sideways far as you can without falling. Wait a spell or fold your fingers to the middle knuckles, knead these makeshift paws against your flesh. Person against wolf, or wolf against person. Our pair are separate, though here in vex contact, the person and wolf touching each other close, like with and by. Against introduces affinity by way of its absence. The wolf and person are in conflict over what generically recall control. Against exercise. I am against an against relation, thus against against exercises. A conundrum. Wolf up person. Who acts here? Who has thrust wolf 
up person. Agency and balance are at odds in this arrangement. Up used this way has a vernacular denotation of violent action to go up someone's head. Is this the aforementioned curse, the punitive werewolf logistic, in excess of up's dynamic activity? The lycanthropic up is also a preposition of verticality. Wolf lodged high, up person, difficult to reach. Up exercise. If you get on your hands, your knees, if you then breathe out, making your spine a convex line, tucking your bottom jaw in toward your sternum, if you finally breathe in, invert your back, and cast your gaze upward, what? And if not, imagine something not you, buried in you. That part of you is above it, as the sky you've been told is above you and was above the thing buried in you, even before it was buried there. Wolf down person. How like up that it troubles balance. Dominant U.S. culture has prepared us for a down werewolf logistic with, it more, with its morgfuls of dead metaphors associating sublimation or repression with depths. Feeling down? A trauma deep down inside? You know how quickly we can rhyme associations of down with pathology. The wolf here is down there, and it was driven or has dug itself in like up to resist contact. Beyond optical demonstration, which does not require equity, down can bring to bear a sense of social abjection. Down exercise, a thought exercise. Inside a relation which includes outsiding, you are the outside into which what others cast out goes inside. What is outside to you? Being as you are, inside is out. Or be as still as you consider still. Do not think wolf any more than you think person. Slowly, deliberately engage your core muscles as if to shit backwards. Person under wolf or wolf under person. Let's acknowledge the verticalist inequity from jump, yes? Even bearing that cultural rhetorical order, I mean to be less figurative. One needs to be so with lycanthropy. The teeth are real, the fur, the claws, of course, one physically under one as a fluid formation need not be a re-rehearsal of domination. If a horse and its rider could exchange roles at different points of a journey, for example. Under exercise. Push-ups with additional weight strapped to one's back, if manageable, make a good preparation. Do not, however, push your body away from the floor. Instead, imagine you are pressing the floor away from your body. In fact, Focusing thusly may be more effective than doing push-ups at all, whether or not you lie down prone on any surface. Wolf from person. From is tricky. The wolf is composed of the person's material. Thus, two separate species exist in a remixed union. This is similar to by, in the sense of authorship, sans the person's implicit agency and shared flesh. From may also suggest the person is the wolf's point of origin, making it not unlike the inside logistic, though, as I hope is clear, the connotative association of each preposition's multiple meanings are difficult to extract and isolate. Finally, in from lurks a Victorian expulsive urge. From exercise, massage, have massage, or imagine massage the region round your mouth and nose, gently drawing them forward. Patience. I could go on.
and have attempted to do so. Prepositions are key to indicating a point of tension in space, particularly between two nouns whose dynamic relationship is fraught, who is subject, who is object, who makes it so, who preserves the relation. Person through wolf, a passage or an achievement, wolf till person, an emphasis on the constraint of time, that soon come full moon rising, person along wolf, person at wolf, are they in conflict, accord, on all fours, rampant, showing belly, who runs person to wolf? Visualizing prepositions, werewolf metamorphosis sequences. I suspect that none of the werewolf metamorphoses I've seen in films would be credibly considered documentaries. They do, though, remind me of the televisual true crime trope of dramatic reenactment, in that I would argue that attempts to render credible scenes of lycanthropic transformation are in part forensic efforts. Why? They are speculative, while reverse engineering sources of evidence. The evidence in the film, the werewolf at optical demonstration or as popularly called, the werewolf. Speculation lets subjectivity in, and as such, the staging and choreography of the transformation illustrates a feeling towards lycanthropy, an interpretation of it as a relation between person and wolf. Prepositions provide a linguistic index for these swirling agons of control, tension, and cooperation. Without a verb, prepositions still imply action while leaving the nature of that action in a space of generative ambiguity, which is to say the preposition can give us a schematic sense, position, a kinetic one, motion and direction, and maybe even an attitude the schema and movement take. Prepositions create a contextual space and a knowing about bodies in that space, proprioception. But whether the wolf tears its way up the person or hunts, winds, leaps is not this writer's concern. This writer today eschews an image-driven vividness for something I think of as the preposition's more mythic vividness. We are given a thing to understand that doesn't first rely on simulating Western sense-making. And in the culture from which I first learned about werewolves, that Western sense-making is counterfeitly synonymous with person. Mighty something. Forgoing the image in that order then prompts me to believe we receive something we do not completely perceive. And here I depart aesthetically from the films I will discuss, which driven to depict special effects mastery and make plausible their tack on werewolf transformation, linger over details and propose biological hypotheticals. Visual media do not default to revealing what a preposition may enshroud, however. Much can happen out of frame behind props or betwixt cuts. In this way, the visual can emphasize what's unseen in ways other media cannot. Visual depictions of werewolf transformations are not opposite to the textual preposition. Rather, the visual may articulate, and in some cases hyper-articulate, the logistic of the prepositional myth. The filmed metamorphosis is the dream the filmmaker has of the prepositional relation, filtered through the practical possibilities of special effects, budget, motion picture association of America ratings, and the crew of collaborators. It's a projected reading. 
The three films I'll be discussing are from the early 80s, not because I believe this was the best time for werewolf films, but because this time was coeval with my burgeoning interest in myth and werewolves. I can only recall seeing one of the films, a short, in full, and it is possible regarding another, I had only animated a still in my imagination. Still, images of the transformations have stuck with me since childhood, there in the part of my head where myths come from, remixed and blurred with where I find me now, what I've learned and misheard before. My poems share that space. Angela Carter and Neil Jordan's script for The Company of Wolves, 1984, emerges from a similar space, the libidinal swelter of Little Red Riding Hood, a French fairy tale. Under Jordan's direction, we see wolves obliterate the bodies they share with their human hosts in two striking form transformations, both fever dreams of brutal eros of the wolf inside person relation. I only remembered one prior to YouTube fact checking. The metamorphosis I didn't remember is pretty great though. This is it. The werewolf, named the young groom and played by Stephen Ray, tears his human skin from his face in bloody strips, revealing the red striated musculature beneath. It looks and sounds painful. The fangs are already there, and the puppet head looks not quite people, even before the nose and mouth thrust into muzzle. My scene, however, involves a person's head and face. What I remembered, a white man's mouth forced open as a fully formed wolf snout thrusts out its gate. Slick, not with blood, but saliva. The werewolf, this werewolf, the huntsman, Misha Berges, was a man what swallowed a wolf or had one grown in him. The huntsman isn't stoic through any of this. He rages in pain. It's difficult to tell whether his agony comes from the metamorphosis or a shotgun wound. Sarah Patterson as Rosaline, imagine the red flower, had just bucked his arm. Reviewing the scene after 30 odd years, I note two things. One, the wolf doesn't climb all the way out of the man's head like I remember. Like I misremembered. The wolf finishes its exit, splitting the man's back like the Hulk splits Bruce Banner's shirts. Two, the wolf presents as regular wolf, Canis Lupus, the huntsman who loves the, companies, the company of wolves and threatens Rosaline, all the better to eat you with, after demanding and receiving her promised kiss. It's all about that mouth and the big teeth in it. His my, oh my, what a long tongue lolls from his lips, the lupine becoming a visual language the filmmaker's wager will be at once strange and familiar. This simultaneity reminds me of the perilous flux Margot Jefferson uses to describe Michael Jackson's constant engagement with shape-shifting in his music videos, cosmetic surgeries, the polyglot lexicon of his performance. Jefferson writes, quote, his appearance is always in perilous flux. Time and again in his videos, we see Michael undergoing monstrous transformations from sweet young man to ghoul thriller, from natty pop star to black cat, Billie Jean, from dancing white robed shaman to hooligan smashing windows, then seizing and stroking his penis, black and white, from raging hooligan to Buddha, scream. He loves genres that emphasize mutable identities, carefree cartoons and horror tales. I saw Michael Jackson's Thriller video, 1983, before The Company of Wolves. Thriller features a protracted transformation scene. Oh, about that transformation. Thriller united 
reunited the team of John Landis, director, and Rick Baker, special makeup effects, of An American Werewolf in London from 1981. Thriller's near 14-minute music video as short film was a myth-making bid sparing no expense. Jefferson writes, when people praise Michael Jackson, they always mention the 1983 Thriller video. That's because it's a short masterpiece, a perfectly thought through and executed horror tale. It's the tale of the double, the man with two selves and two souls, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is his true self. To this, she adds, why does he feel a connection to this dreadful, menacing other? Jackson's shape-shifting optical demonstration, like many in the genre, including The Company of Wolves, forces the on-screen onlooker, so, so often written to be a woman, to stand watching, screaming, and importantly, not getting a head start on escaping. Ola Ray does this work gamely, as Jackson's letterman-jacketed BMOC jackknifes into the Lou stomach cramp. After a series of what sound like MJ's soul hiccups, he roars, go away! Is that the last bit of Jackson as Jekyll prior to the hide he was hiding? Maybe. Who was it took Ray out on a full moon night knowing the nature of his condition? The car breaking down may have stranded them, but darkness had already fallen. Perhaps he reckoned his prepositional relation as person over cat, person on top, a dom. Still over could also suggest a cover-up, like the Letterman jacket that doesn't get jacked up in the shift of cat over person. And yes, cat, not wolf. Soon come. After watching the premiere, as everyone else I knew did, I didn't watch the transformation itself again for some time. It scared the shit out of me. And of the monster himself, the thriller were-creature is a were-cat, were-cad. Baker wasn't interested in doing another werewolf. Happily, its fur was not jerry-curled, though by rights, some of it should have been. Baker renders the transformation with the forensic attention to detail. The whiskers piercing the flesh of Jackson's face is my second most memory. In a dead heat with the claws making their wet sounds through fingertips that would, in later clips, rock medical tape. Once stuck in the middle of the metamorphosis grip, pain follows horror for Jackson's unnamed high schooler. But if the transformation in progress isn't agonizing, neither does Jackson appear to take pleasure in it. The bright yellow feline contacts gogging his eyes, along with the FX oral prosthetics, make it hard to suss out much beyond gaping shock. Let's consider this an intended effect and not a concession in production or performance. When Jackson looks at his transformed palm, a now cat man without a mirror, he seeks the only recognition he can get beyond Ray's screaming. I'm not like other guys. I'm different. The most important moment of this metamorphosis for me, the signature image locked in my myth brain, is the reveal of the transformation's first phase. Michael's mouth, a drawer full of cutlery, his eyes like lanterns, his oft buttery lilt turned a guttural bellowing, go away! We should heed that go away. We learn later in the video's waking nightmare structure, I mean, that Jackson is always the werecat, the ending image, his grinning face, marked only by the feline contacts and haunted by Vincent Price's graveyard cackle, his mere punctuation, his pretty cruelties drive the video more than his dancing. Decontextualized, 
Go away could be a victim's language. Ola Ray could say it. It seems likely we are meant to understand Jackson's character as protecting her. Go away! If so, who is saying it? The guy who led Ola Ray into the woods knowing he was a werecat? Different? Not like other guys? Or the fanged one who knows what's coming? Go away! Go away could be petulant. He says it right after Ray presses to see why he doubles over. Don't look at me when I'm like this. Go away rhymes with get out, but it's too late to do either now. Jackson, sources report, adored horror. Though Landis also says that Jackson found many of the images from Fright Flicks that Baker showed him too scary. Did Jackson see an American werewolf in London? Assuredly, Landis and Baker awaited him there as they did me. But in the 1981 film, they had not the world's biggest pop star to act as person in their werewolf logistic, but David Naughton as David Kessler. Kessler is befuddled by his new reality and often droll about it, though his first transformation is a clear torment. Baker's visual effects are here the closest to what I mean by forensic. The focus is on Naughton. There's no one screaming or, on, or no on-screen scientist observing, just us in the dark and Kessler alone in his lover's brightly lit living room. Struck suddenly by a spike in body temperature, Kessler tears off his clothes. Nothing occludes our examination. For about two and a half minutes, the camera takes him in, studying. Landis says, my inspiration was the old 1940s horror movie, The Wolfman, starring Lon Chaney, in which unusually the werewolf was portrayed as a victim. Films tended to show the transformation from man to wolf through dissolves. But I wanted to capture how painful the entire process would be and make it painful to watch. Thus, we inspect the metamorphosis from all angles. Kessler's face, his back, his ass, details of his hands and bare feet. At one point, he rolls over, allowing us a pectoral view of the shift. Landis's observation about the change of werewolf from monstrous person to afflicted sufferer rhymes with Kashuba, who similarly notes that, as people lost their superstitious fears of demons and witches, the werewolf became seen as a more sympathetic creature, one whose shape-shifting was more likely due to a curse put upon it than to any willful desire on the part of the human to change into a wolf. Even like Landis, naming the Wolfman after 1935's Werewolf of London as an exemplar of this changed interpretation. The person's experience of the metamorphosis as physically agonizing is central to eliciting our pity and or revulsion. Naughton's writhing and agonized performance in an American werewolf in London looks and sounds painful. I've mentioned earlier my hand stretching exercise. Here is its root. David Kessler's palm extending into the wolf's form's metacarpals. That image, Kessler looks on his face, still a white man's in horror and pain, as though surgery is being performed on him without propofol. The toll of lycanthropic transformation had never seemed skeletal to me before. All dissolves in instant presto changos, but a matter of surfaces. This bone-deep sense was amplified by special sound effects designer Richard Lightman, who finds a perfect blend of moisture and clicking for the mobile bones re-knitting under the motile flesh. Through it all, Kessler pleads for help and mercy until his muzzle will no longer make the words, his teeth no longer doing anything but ribboning his English. The room goes dim and I knew the relation here wasn't Kessler into Wolf, but Wolf of Kessler. And what a wolf 
Admittedly, I favor bipedal lycanthropes, though should I reach my goal, I'd appreciate the ability to go quad for heightened speed, facilitated by the dog leg haunch. Baker's wolf is a quadruped, but not just some big nasty looking wolf. The forelegs are elongated, the wolf slung forward and top heavy. Its paws are articulated in a way that seem to remember being hands, the claws jutting and jutting. There are times while writing when I lean back from the computer and my fingers go up to my mouth. Onychophagia. Nail biting is another long-term project. When the nails are nubbed, the clipped pale crescents bend or ground down, I work the skin around the cuticle. I'm thinking of a word as my teeth close in on a flap of flayed skin. Had I fangs, I could slice this frayed end right off. I'm thinking, thinking of a word as I start to gnaw, to tug the skin away. There's an instant before it starts to sting, before what's revealed is too red and wet, that I might pull and pull, firmly, like stripping the periosteum off a shank bone. And if I do this right, I could pull the skin off in one piece, revealing in a spiral of thin ribbon the meat underneath pulling the thin rind away in a slim, spiraling strip. I'm thinking, thinking, thinking of a word when I realize what is happening. The hangnail tears off. I bite down hard on the whole distal phalanx. The crush of my blunt teeth's pressure shifts the pain from the torn skin to the whole thumb. There is so much me in my stomach, more perhaps than what I've spit out person in person. Two metamorphoses I'd like to add. One I've only seen in Woodcut, the other I saw only recently as a clip in a YouTube video of best werewolf transformation scenes from Gump Grumpy Andrew's Horror House. The first, one could go into a wolf by pissing a ring around a wolf skin on, or, or your own clothes if you removed them, piled them up, and satisfied a few other environmental slash sartorial conditions. The other, a scene from Hemlock Grove, a TV series in which following an optical demonstration very much like the Huntsman, the werewolf eats his discarded human skin. On catharsis. I have told you that I have practiced at something, repeated it with an intention of preparation and inception, becoming a werewolf. I do not practice reading my poems in this fashion. I read many of them as I work on them. This is generally a process, part of a process of revision. I'm readying them to be done with being written. But when I'm asked after readings whether I practice my poems, this isn't what I figure most people to mean. I think they want to know whether I rehearse the poems for reading so that I may perform them well. And this kind of practice I do not do. Another question I'm asked is whether I write poems the way I write them because of the skills I can bring to a reading or do I bring the skills because the poem requires them? There are things that I know I can do fairly well. Among these things, number techniques that work in a context of live performance. They may not always work in every situation, just as certain compositional or rhetorical effects may not always work in every written situation. But I've paid attention to a lexicon of performance. Sometimes you pick something up. I do not mean to be coy. I want to push myself. I always I, I shouldn't say, I also want to experience pleasure. There are things I enjoy doing when I write, and some of these lead to familiar gestures to embody. Often, 
I work against them towards a generative estrangement. I'm willing to make myself uncomfortable to serve a longer term elusive goal. You may think now by talking about technique and not say content, I am avoiding discussing catharsis or that I have at last decided to stop talking about werewolves. No and no, for I'm going to go into catharsis, rather its absence through what has become an exercise in werewolf practice, a briar of control and change or release and relief. For after queries of practice and process, another question I frequently receive is about catharsis. That is, are my poems cathartic? No. Writing them. No. Reading them. No. Not if the idea of catharsis includes release and relief in a relation, a logistic, one that could be described by way of a preposition. Writing and performing poems for me is not cathartic. Instead, these activities are a bit like tearing off a skin, then chewing it up. Recall that a werewolf's injuries carry over between forms. This, I think, is a key way to understand why writing then performing the poems does not provide relief for me. Even if the poem provided an ersatz optical demonstration, whatever wound it seemed to take on would be there in the morning, under my fresh shirt, my untorn pants, my gargled maw. And even at the point of going through changes, it can be hard to discern or detangle pain and horror. There are moments in my readings when I appear to get angry. I say appear to get to emphasize not the irony of perceiving my anger, but the irony that it has suddenly seized me, as though a shield of dark clouds blocking the moon, gazing round and pale, has finally blown away. Like one of contemporary myth's most profitable lycanthropes, Bruce Banner remarks in The Avengers, that's my secret. I'm always angry. The moon in my mind stays full. When in a reading, I come to a point in a poem where the irony, that which I have alloyed into the poem itself, gets to be a bit much, or say the poem's formal control is working too well, or say the poem is communicating a feel I feel unable to fully embody, I feel, how can I say it, a moment in which a part of me may double over, something cramps like a muscle I haven't prepared, or a muscle I have overused. When I think about how best to read a poem aloud, I try to be present in the poem, to remember where I was emotionally, psychologically when I composed it, which is to put me closer to where I had been when what incited me to write it happened, tracking it through all that's passed between the multiple points. But then as I'm reading it, I must also be aware of who I am, the body I'm in, the conditions under which I've come to be present where I am in that body, and the bodies of the audience there with me as well. To be proprioceptive of a place I remember in a body from long ago, while I mean to know this one now. Go away is a difficult thing to say when your body is an invitation, even one you didn't make. If I say go away, who says it? After all, I knew the time, the pale moon's fullness, how dense the thicket. There is a timbre I associate with these moments. It is one I know, one I remember, 
one I've learned over years of years of practice for nothing at all, for something that will probably never happen. I'm thinking, 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 thinking of a word, and the skin is coming off me, my mouth a drawer full of cutlery. When this happens at a reading, times are I can see the end of it, like a length of chain or expanse of fence. Other times, I only know that it can go into, on, up, down, through, from, but never completely apart. I look down at my hands, stretching toward the next page. What I know about this is what the fourth grader with his library book tried to understand. The words alone won't do it. You need something else something to get into your skin, something rubbed in. The words only take you to the edge of it. The words are a spell, a trigger, but not the thing itself, not the memory in your hands of what you've never been able to make them do. And that's why I don't find the poems cathartic, not even when my voice finds the rest of me and we're there as all we are, under the bright gaze. What is cathartic about control? And I have practiced and practiced and practiced becoming a werewolf even longer than I've been writing poetry. Now, tell me, as the car is shuddering to a stop and the sounds of crickets and frogs creak around us, in the falling darkness. How good at it do you reckon I am? That was Douglas Kearney giving his lecture, Hashtag Werewolf Goals. Kearney's book, based on his BWLS lectures, Optic Subwoof, is forthcoming from Wave Books, and is available for pre-order at wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics, and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website, bagleywrightlectures.org, for more information about this and other talks and writings by Bagley Wright lecturers, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Thank you to Washington University for originally partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions, from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.